Well, welcome to week four and our ongoing learning and growing in the spiritual practices. Now, today we're going to dive into two new major practices. Maybe you've heard about them, maybe you haven't. Solitude and silence. Now, some of you are going, oh, God, please, please uh, give these to me as a gift. I was talking to a mother at our Port Perry site, and she's now homeschooling five children. And as I was on the phone with her, she said, I have never been attracted or wanting solitude and silence in my life, but me and my husband have decided we want them and we want them now. We just might leave and ask God for these gifts. If you're on the online chat, you might want to start putting amen or clapping hands because, oh my goodness, she's like, get me out of here. I just want some silence and some solitude. I was joking with some of our staff uh, the day I was finishing writing the sermon that I would probably never experience these even if I wanted to during this ongoing moment. After I said that, the day got even more crazy. Uh, Something burned upstairs, the fire alarm went off, and we barely got the call into the alarm group, so they didn't call the police or the fire fire station to help us because we didn't need it. And then my daughter's Zoom crashed as she was trying to work with her tutor. And then the puppy, Augustine, who's the new addition to our family, started playing with a glass upstairs, knocked it, and it fell all the way downstairs and smashed into a thousand pieces and then tried eating the glass so we were trying to prevent that. And and if that's not enough, then the day ended by my son being on the deck and getting the largest splinter I have ever seen in my life. It took two hours, maybe two hours and 20 minutes to get out in periods. And I swear the police were going to come at the end of the day too because he was screaming so loud as we were taking it out. I thought a neighbor thought we were going to be like murdering our child. So that's the day that I was trying to finish a, a sermon on solitude Oh, in silence. That was my day. What about yours? <laughs> Let's talk about reality beyond a day. Pre-COVID and even during COVID, and some of you will be listening to this message years later, post-COVID, our culture swims in the opposite direction of these two spiritual practices. Let's just let the facts speak. The average person sees about 3 million people in their lifetime and will interact and remember about 3,000 We tend to, during normal periods, have about 12 social interactions per day, lots of faces, lots of people, and now, of course, with Google Hangouts and Zoom, we are actually probably interacting with more people, and psychologists are now telling us that it's actually taking a greater toll on us because we have to focus more on a screen. The average North American has 30 conversations a day, and here's something, we will spend one-fifth of our life talking One-fifth of your whole life, you'll be doing what I'm doing right now. In one year, the average person, their conversations would fill 66 books at 800 pages a book. That means 52,800 pages of conversation you're going to do in one year. If you're a man, the average word count is 20,000 a day. If you're a woman, it's 30,000 a day. And then let's go to technology. More than 4.5 billion people are on the internet starting in 2020. Active social media use has passed the 3.8 billion mark. 60% or nearly 60% of the world's population is now online. And trends say that by the middle of 2020, half of the world's population will be using social media. Across the globe and all the different cultures, social media is accessed about two and a half hours a day across about eight to 12 different social networks and messaging apps, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, to name a few. 
But as the age gets younger, the stats go higher. The average 8 to 12-year-old in America spends about 4 hours and 44 minutes a day on a screen. That was in 2019. Now, if you're 13 to 18, they used entertainment social media for an average of, ready, 7 hours and 22 minutes each day in 2019. And when you look at the studies connected to adults, they're not far behind. Oh, and then the crisis that I'm living through and you're living through right now hit, which one person said is a workaholic's dream slash nightmare all rolled into one. And so we have less or more interactions depending on who you are. So now this older quote really comes home. Modern people, modern men, is a little afraid of being alone and being still. Because we're afraid to know ourselves. We actually find difficulty in knowing then one another. Because we don't know how to withdraw into ourselves, we find it hard to fully go out to other people. Now, as we come to these very countercultural practices, they're intertwined, by the way. Some of us, by personality, let's just admit it, we love these. But remember, you who love these, you've got to have this in your mind. The goal is to meet with God. Not to just be with yourself or, or be introverted, if that's how God has created you. Or to escape other people. It's fine, by the way, that some of you love these, but don't call them spiritual practices, holy habits, spiritual disciplines when you're not meeting with God. It's just your personality. Others of us hate them, and it sort of goes against how we are created more as extroverts or community connection people, and we never want to do them, but we are also called into them for freedom and encounter. So welcome to the conversation about solitude and silence. And like I just shared, much of our fast-paced culture rises against this. Yet as people are becoming more disenfranchised with the Western story and the secular story, many are starting to rediscover these practices. Yet the question always for us as Christians is, who are you meeting in these moments when you practice these holy habits? See, this is not about self-help. This is not some avenue for self-realization. The purpose is not self-discovery or or the encounter to get healed through pain, etc. Though those are byproducts and fine, this is not about encounter with you or the universe or some higher power or, no, no. This, the goal here is to encounter the true only living God found in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Now talking about the Holy Spirit, as we get going here, one of his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is intertwined between these two practices. It's the act or the fruit of patience or the act of waiting. Think about all the time that God's people over their lifetime had to wait. Daniel, lion's den, Noah, ark, Paul, prison, Moses, wilderness, solitude, silence, waiting, And patience have always marked those who walk with God the closest. Wow, talking about countercultural, going against the grain of our own natures and our own culture. Years ago, someone was uh, interviewing a spiritual formation writer about this very question. And he focused in on the patience and the waiting part. And he says, like, why do you do it? And what's the purpose? And doesn't it seem like a waste of time? And this is how the person responded. There is a cultural myth that waiting is doing nothing. Oh, let me say that again. There is a cultural myth, especially in North America, that waiting is doing nothing. 
Second, waiting, they said, is the most important thing a person can do. Third, if you can't learn to wait and be still, you cannot hear what God wants you to do in your life. Wow. So here's the question. I mean, lots of us listening are seekers and skeptics, and we're trying to understand the Christian faith, so that's one perspective. Some of us are brand new Christians and trying to understand how to walk in this relationship, but many of us listening have been Christians for years and years, and this is not our practice at all. So, so why, no matter who you are in those categories, or another one, why do most of us not want to experience silence or solitude, let alone silence and the solitude to encounter God himself? Well, there are lots of reasons, some obvious, some not. Now, the first is this. It's the fear of being alone. Time and time again, when there are surveys done globally, within the top three fears, being alone is always brought up. And these practices, we think, will plunge us into one of our deepest fears, so we avoid them. But right here, in this moment, we're then confronted by Jesus and his word. I mean, do you actually believe that Jesus said He will never leave us or forsake us. See, if you're a Christian, you actually are never truly alone. And we don't need to be afraid of solitude and silence because when we sit in these, he's still there, right? Even more, when you get serious about silence or, or commit to purposeful solitude, things deeply hidden within us suddenly come to the surface quite unexpectedly. When all the noise and all, all the distractions go away, there's a real fear among a lot of us of what might be discovered. Guilt, brokenness, uh, fear, things that happened to you you don't want to face or things you did you don't want to talk about or things done to you. The list goes on and on. When you go quiet for real, you're left with you and what's in you. Sometimes there are, and I've experienced this, very disturbing emotions that come up when we do these practices that we don't want to face, like terror or panic or, or hatred. See, if you're always talking, if you're always with people or always online or always watching or always scrolling and always on the move and always stimulated and there's always music in the background and you've always got something in your ears, then you will never have to face pain or history or sin. You will never be able to sit with the one who could make you free, encourage you, or direct you. I mean, this is what David wrote so long ago, actually connected to quite a dangerous and violent moment in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am what? God. Notice again, just like we learned about prayer. Silence and solitude are other-centric. Encounter with God, not encounter with yourself. And as you encounter him, as you become still and know he is God, all the stuff we suddenly face could be healed and put in its proper place. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Time and time again, Jesus withdrew. If you read the Gospels, he does it 45 times, and he withdraws, and he prays. And amazingly, if you really do your homework, you'll find out that Jesus, just before almost every major event, is alone praying And then the thing happens, or the thing happens, and then he goes away and prays. So right when he's 30, he's baptized. We've talked about this before. What's the first thing he does? He goes in solitude and silence, and what? He he prays, and then his ministry started. Uh, It's amazing. In the very first chapter of Mark, which is sort of the earliest biography of Jesus, we see this right up front. Mark 135, very early in the morning, well, it was still dark, 
Jesus got up. Jesus left the house. He went off to a solitary place where he what? Prayed. He's alone praying in the Gospels, and then he chooses the 12 disciples. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. They come back so excited, and he says to them, by the way, isn't that awesome? You should now go away and rest and be quiet. When Jesus hears about his cousin's death, John the Baptist, he goes away into the hills alone. After he feeds the 5,000, he goes away again. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes up Peter, James, and John to mentor them in this solitude and silence experience. And just before Jesus is about to be executed and betrayed, where is he? Well, he's alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, what? Praying. The pattern is clear. Jesus, like we say around here all the time at Sanctus Church, is not just our Savior and not just our Lord, but he's our model, right? So now let's stop and make the connection back to week one. And if you were not with us, please, please, I beg you to go back and listen to week one in this series. Jesus chose not to do ministry out of his divinity, between Christmas and Easter, even though Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, he is God, he's equal to the Father, but he did this so he could model what a normal Christian life looks like. Remember one of those crucial verses right out of the book of John. John 5, 19, I tell you the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So we asked this question, remember in week one, and we also dealt with this in the spiritual gift series. How did Jesus hear what he was called to do since he was not using his godness, though he remains God? How did he see what God the Father was up to? And the answer is he used what? Spiritual practices. This is how he saw. This is how he listened. This is how he got permission. And two of the most important habits Jesus is is using in these moments is solitude and silence. Okay, then you're like, okay, well, How do you define this? Uh, Okay. I love how one person said, solitude, one wrote, is the creation, notice you've got to create it, of an open, empty space in our lives by purposely abstaining from interaction with other human beings so we can be freed from competing loyalties and can be found by God. See, solitude isn't just time alone. It's time alone with God. The problem is never God's availability, it's our availability. And why? Why is this important? Let me repeat this. If Jesus' whole ministry was permission-based, only what the Father tells me what to do, if we can never listen, then we will never know. If, If we don't create quiet moments, we can never be like Jesus. See, this discipline, along with others, is critical in hearing what God might be asking of you, what God might be speaking over you, what God might be wanting from you, what God wants to encourage you with, what God might want to free you from. But you need to pair one with another. Richard Foster once wrote, silence is the way we make solitude a reality. Silence, one wrote, is the closing off of ourselves from sounds whether noise or music or words, so we may better still the inner chatter and clatter of our noisy hearts and become increasingly attentive to God. So if you want to be attentive to God, in other words, if you're in a relationship with God through Jesus by the Spirit, 
If you want to be close to God, if you want to hear God, if you want to be healed by God, if you want to be led by God, if you just want to sit with God, these two practices are critical. But not only are they hard to do in our culture, but if you begin to do them, you'll experience more resistance, not just from your home and not just from our culture itself and not just from your calendar or family or job, but actually your own heart will resist this. And actually, Satan, the kingdom of darkness, will show up. One of the second largest spiritual conflict moments in Jesus' life, other than the cross, happens during an extended moment of silence and solitude. And, and I'd love you, if you've got a Bible in any form today, to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew 4. Because Jesus, while he is in solitude and silence, interacts with the devil and it's important that we walk through the temptations he faced because when we do these things, we'll face the same ones. It says in Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There it is again. There's Jesus' model. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Obvious. Yes, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human and was vulnerable. So Satan now comes. Oh, and, and who's Satan again? I love the description in John 8, 44. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of what? All lies. So Satan now comes to the wilderness, and Jesus would have been gaunt and tired and cracked lips and parched and swollen tongue and smelling like exposure for 40 days. He's vulnerable. Like the very first Adam in Eden, Satan would use the same vehicles of temptation. And the question is, would the second Adam, Jesus, give in like the first Adam? See, the temptations have not changed since the beginning. What's given to Adam and Eve, given to Jesus, and given to us are exactly the same. And the devil tempts Jesus, just like he started with Eve and Adam. He, you can read about it in Genesis 3.6. Remember, Satan says to Eve, oh, you should go eat from the forbidden fruit. And when Eve looks at it, here's the description, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was ready, you can underline this, good for food, and next one, pleasing to the eye, underline, and desirable for, here it is, underline, gaining wisdom. Those three things are actually the temptation. Eugene Peterson gives us great insight into this. Temptation one, good for food, sensual gratification. The craving of the physical, food, drink, sexual gratification, sensual pleasure. Now again, those things aren't wrong in themselves unless they cross the boundaries that God has said we can or cannot go to and or if they lead us to sin. The second temptation, pleasing to the eye, is lust of the eyes. It's wrong desire. It's greed. It's coveting. It's envy. It's jealousy. It's wanting to go where you're not allowed. It's trespassing. It's to be captivated by the outward. It's to live or die by what people say. Temptation three. The fruit looked good for gaining wisdom. It's a legal knowledge. You should be like God. You can be God. You should trespass move them out. So that's what was given to Eve and Adam. Now watch this, ready? In the book of Matthew. The tempter came to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. There it is, temptation one, sensual gratification. Hey, Jesus, you're so hungry. Bread sure smells good and it would taste good and bread is good for you and God invented bread and you're so hungry. Come on, it's okay. <laughs> to be hungry was not a sin 
or wrong. And Jesus, by the way, had abilities to do great miracles. But Satan's goal was to drive a wedge between God the Father and God the Son. So he uses bread and hunger, sensual gratification. He wants, ready, Jesus to be alone and self-sufficient. You don't need God's help. You don't need God's power, ready? You don't need God's permission. You just do it. Well, Jesus answered, very interesting. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and he's quoting a moment where the people have been wandering for an extended period of time, and they're in the wilderness. Now Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's going to be the more faithful Israel. Watch this, though. Deuteronomy 8.3, God speaking to Israel, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God the Father gives the bread. Obedience to God the Father's will and waiting for him to give the thing over self-gratification. What's the modern twist on this temptation? What are you going to face when you begin this journey? Well, Henry Nouwen put it best. He says, you'll be tempted to be relevant. He writes, the secular world around us is saying a lot. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need a church. We don't need a priest. We don't need God. We're in control. And if we're not, we just need to work harder to get control. The problem in culture is not lack of faith. It's lack of confidence. But see, there's a completely different story to tell. Under all the great accomplishments of our time, there's a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship, intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feeling the emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. And by the way, isn't it amazing that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought all of this to the surface even more? Well, the devil's not done. He now takes Jesus to Jerusalem in a vision-like state. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. So not just Jerusalem, but to the temple. He takes him to God's presence. Isn't that wild? Takes him to the footstool of heaven and earth. He takes him to a holy place, the most holy place, to to tempt him to do the most unholy thing. Now, I was in Israel, I think, six months ago or whenever it was. And you can still see where the highest point of the temple is. It's 180 feet high. So Satan and Jesus are are standing. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Because the Bible says he'll command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up with their hands so you'll not strike your foot against a stone. So watch this. In the most holy place on earth, the devil quotes the Bible. Psalm 91 And actually, not only quotes the Bible, he also repeats the Jewish thinking of the day. See, rabbis in Jesus' day used to say this. When the king, the Messiah, reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. So Satan says to Jesus, by this action, you'll prove who you are. Just go ahead and, and do it. See, the second avenue is lust of the eyes. It's greed. It's inappropriate desire. Or as one wrote, it's to be spectacular. You'll have the great applause, Jesus. The people will love you. What a show you'll put on. You you will have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers on Facebook and you'll be retweeted and loved in Instagram. Everyone will talk about you. You deserve the show. You are the show. God shouldn't be the center of the show. You should be. You should be the center of attention. You are the son of God, right? I love, again, when Henry Nouwen said, Jesus refused to be a stuntman. 
He did not come to walk on hot coals or swallow fire or put his hand in a lion's mouth to demonstrate he had something authentic. The Son of God can live only in a relationship of trust, which needs no testing. That's why Jesus says it is also written, do not put the Lord God to a test. To the test. Well, Satan ups the ante, now takes him from one country, one city, one place, and in a vision-like moment shows him the world, which if you read the Bible, he is called the God of this earth. He says, this is all mine. So it takes Jesus to this high mountain, he says, and he shows him, by the way, all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. He says, I'm going to give all this to you if you will just bow down and worship me. All the color, all the military, all the food, all the sexual pleasure in any direction, all treasure, all of physical reality. The goal was to get Jesus to do this the wrong way. This was an attack on his identity by tempting him to bypass his call. God had already promised Jesus everything. I mean, Psalm 2-7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is a messianic psalm. He said to me, you're my son today. I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. So the goal is to give the earth to Jesus, but without the mission of the cross and without the establishment of the church. You can be king and powerful and control and self-made, but you don't need to suffer. You can just have it. Notice the verse, just before the Great Commission, when everything had been done right. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and earth has been taken by me. I bought it. No, no, given to me. It had to be given under God the Father's will, not taken. Jesus responds in verse 10, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All this happens during solitude and silence. So solitude and silence and the growing of patience through waiting are some of the most important holy habits you can practice. And don't forget, we're at the heart of Jesus' own life and work. And the most significant work of Jesus, think about it, overcoming Satan, the call of the 12, the feeding of the 5,000, the transfiguration, where we see the full identity of Jesus expressed, the cross, we're all connected to these two holy habits. So, okay, why do them? Four reasons. One, (laughs) encounter. When we do these things, we will sit with him, be with him, hear from him. Remember what we heard all the way back in week one? Let me say it again. Philippians 4.12, Paul writes this incredible statement where he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. Wow. I can do all things through Christ, Jesus who gives me strength. He says the secret of contentment with everything or nothing in the crazy or the boring, in the isolation or the suffocation is Jesus himself. In other words, contentment is found in a person. It was Teresa of Avila that once wrote, settle yourself in solitude and you will come upon him in yourself. See, that's true if you're a Christian. That is absolutely true if you're a Christian. If you repented of your sins, you believe Jesus really died, really physically rose from the dead, that he's God in flesh, he's the only way to salvation. If you're born again, if the spirit of Jesus lives in you and you commit yourself to solitude and silence, you will come upon Jesus within yourself. Yes, but if you're not a Christian, 
These practices and all the other ones will only take you to you or your pain or your history or your fear or will even take you to another force that you think might be divine but actually is not, which is more scary and dangerous. We do these practices after we get saved by trusting in Jesus. But if you want to encounter Jesus and to imitate Jesus, solitude and silence absolutely must be on the table. Reason two, it deals with idolatry and sin. These moments will begin to expose you and give you the chance with God and later his community to flush out and actually confront the ongoing temptations of relevance, popularity, wrong control, and self-reliance. If you want to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus and you don't want to grieve the spirit, you want more of his work in your life, oh, these will help you. Number, number three, it not only leads to transformation, it leads to hearing. These practices will give you a new capacity for discernment. As you're alone with God, you're going to be able to discern in ways you never can when you're so busy and always on. It's also essential for a prayer life, being attentive to God as we are with God and hearing like Jesus did. Oh, here's the fourth one, and I haven't even brought this up. Could be a whole other sermon, but we'll at least begin it this way. Silence and solitude, but specifically silence, helps us tame our tongues. Richard Foster said, this is profound. The tongue is a thermometer. It gives us our spiritual temperature. It also is our thermostat. It regulates our spiritual temperature. Controlling of the tongue can mean everything. James 1.19, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Psalm 141.3, set a guard over my mouth. O Lord, keep watch over the doors of my lips. Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, we are on earth. So let your words be few. Okay, well, let's say we're like, yeah, we're in. We're going to try doing these when we have the chance. How do I do them? I mean, for real, like how, how do I do them, especially in the culture that we live in? Well, number one, you don't have to become a monk to do these things. I mean, some of you might be called into a monastic life. That's fine. But this is not the call for the average Christian. And yet the average Christian is called into these because we all can do what Jesus did. So how do we do this while we live life? Well, number one, as I read all these different people, they say find little moments of solitude. There are more moments of solitude than you think. Get up just a little bit earlier with a cup of coffee when no one else is stirring and sit and you can have some solitude and maybe even some silence. Maybe go to bed a little bit later. Some of the best times I have in solitude is after I've cleaned the kitchen, after the kids are bed, in bed and I just take a moment. In other words, instead of just watching Netflix from 8.30 or 9 till 11, take 20 minutes out and just be involved in solitude or silence. Uh, when things sort of get back to normal. Lots of us have solitude moments in the car when we're stuck in traffic. That can be redeemed. Find little moments of solitude. Acknowledge them and redeem them. Number two, find a place to keep going back to. Lots of people need routine. So maybe there's a place in the park or maybe there's a place in your home. Lots of people that I talk to who do this have a chair, like in their house, there's that chair. And that's where they go to do that thing. Find a place that's somewhat consistent. Number three, create moments of silence. Literally shut up. When's the last time you literally were in your room and you shut off everything? 
no music, no humming in the back, like nothing, and just sat there for five minutes. You'll be shocked how much is in your mind. Five minutes, 10 minutes. Choose not to talk for a day. Please tell your family if you choose to do that, because this isn't sort of like sort of, you know, passive aggressive moments. I did this, by the way, for 24 hours once when I was in my undergrad at Bible college, and I, I, I had a marker that people knew I wasn't being rude. They knew I was practicing silence for a day, but not solitude. And I couldn't believe what came up in my mind in that 24 hours. And then some of you are like, okay, well, if I start doing this a little bit, what do I actually do? Well, you're going to listen. You're going to find out how busy your mind is. And here's one of the most important things. When the bad stuff comes up, when you suddenly are fearful or panicking or you get really angry or or an image comes up or something comes up, instead of running from it or suppressing it, say, I'm giving this to you, God. I'm giving this to you, God. In other words, start handing the stuff over that starts appearing in your mind, but give it to Jesus. Over time, as you do this more, things will be quieter. Here in this space, this is when you begin to listen and read your Bible and pray. These practices tie into the others. Uh, they, they help. Lots of times when um, the rhythm is a little bit more normal and I'm working actually in this facility at lunch, for five to 15 minutes, I'll just walk in here and I'll sit here, I'll be my, by myself and I'll commit to solitude for 15 minutes just to listen, just to pray and sometimes even to silence. It's just a, a rhythmic way of doing this. Now, to help us do this better, we're gonna sort of point you to some resources on the chat and then connected to the podcast. And, and these are discovered in John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted, which is an amazing book on spiritual disciplines for everyday normal people. And, and what he did in his section on solitude is he, he pointed to two different things, how to do this every day and how to do this every year. Now, in the everyday thing, he just tells you how to review your day with God. And so we'll post the book and maybe we'll be even, even able to post the thing, we'll see. But it just shows you how to do this every day at the end of your day how to review your day with God in solitude and silence. The other thing he points out, though, is we should do an extended solitude and silence moment probably once a year. And, and I love, he, he found this quote by a guy named Francis de Sales, who was in the 1500s, a Catholic bishop in Geneva in Switzerland. And he uses the image of a clock from his generation, but the, the quotation is so helpful to an extended period. He writes this, he says, there is no clock, no matter how good it may be, that doesn't need resetting, remember this is his time period, and rewinding twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. In addition, at least once a year, it must be taken apart to remove the dirt clogging it, straighten out all the parts, repair those that are worn out in like manner. Every morning and every evening, a person who really takes care of his heart must rewind it for God's service. Wow. More, however... He or she must often reflect on their condition in order to reform and improve it. Finally, at least once a year, they must take apart and examine every piece in detail, that is every affection and every passion in order to repair whatever defects there might be. And so his encouragement is is once a year for 12 hours or 24 hours, we should be going away and committing to a time of solitude and silence with God using other spiritual practices. And again, in John Ortberg's book, he actually outlines how to do that hour by hour for a whole day. And it's an amazing, simple way. And we'll point you to that. But I want to encourage you to begin small. 
I want to encourage you, well, first of all, even before that, understand that this is so fundamentally important. Solitude and silence are critical to prayer, to Bible reading, to hearing, to being led. Solitude and silence are going to bring up so much of the hidden stuff we don't want to face, but when we face it, we can be free. Oh, and the Holy Spirit won't be grieved. Oh, and greater moves of the kingdom will happen. Solitude and silence can happen in short ways, in three-minute periods, five-minute periods, ten-minute periods. It can happen in half-an-hour periods and days. So are you willing to begin? Are you willing to reorient your life to experience and experiment? And are you willing to encounter? So let's just take a moment and let's pray these things. Number one, thanks, Jesus, for being our model. Thank you that you show us what it's like to walk with God in a perfect way. Again, I pray for all sorts of people connecting with us who are seekers and skeptics and spiritual or, or nothing, and they're trying to understand the faith. I just, again, pray that they would encounter you first so these disciplines actually become useful later. Uh, for us who know you already, I just, number one, pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be sent out and begin to seek and speak to those who would even be open, and solitude and silence would begin to mark our church in bits and pieces and then in greater measure. I pray you'd meet us when we do this, and I, and I pray that new rhythms would be built across our church so the encounters would grow, and in those encounters, we'd only meet Jesus and his spirit, and his word would have authority. Lastly, I pray you just help us to do it. Help us to see the moments of solitude or silence or show us where the creation of them could be. We're just so thankful for this. Grow us in this, we ask, in Jesus' name. And we all said together, yeah, amen. So glad that you joined us today. There are, again, never forget, you can always reach out to us here. There are people in the chat who want to pray with you. We'll post resources every week as we do this, and hopefully you'll begin to grow in this. And let me just say, especially for we who are listening to this sermon series in this moment, realizing many of you might be listening years later, some of us now actually have more time for solitude and silence, and some of us don't, but we should be looking for the moments. Let's look for the moments. And then let's seize them together. Because remember, Jesus is the source of contentment. And when we sit with him, we can find it. God bless you. We'll see you next week.